Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to be here today. We got a lot of things to talk about. Yes, we had the jobs report came out on Friday. Want to discuss those numbers. Also, too, going to talk about the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, also known as SVB. What is going on that? What happened and so forth? We'll, we'll discuss that. And then uh, also discuss stock buybacks and uh, a little bit of oil companies, maybe. Chase? And as always, here to take your phone calls, you want to join the show. Phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. So let's talk about the uh, jobs report because it uh, came out uh, on Friday. The headline jobs number of 311,000 easily topped the estimate of 225,000, but marks a slowdown from January's level of 504,000. Now, leisure and hospitality remain strong with the addition of 105,000 jobs. With a solid number, the sector is now just 2.4% or about 410,000 uh, jobs uh, below the February 2020 level, right before COVID started. Uh, other areas of strength included uh, healthcare and social assistance up 62,800. Uh, this surprised me, retail trade up 50,100. Government, 46,000. Professional and business services, plus 45,000. And construction was 24,000. Then looking at uh, the weakest group here was actually the information sector as that group declined by 25,000. And also transportation and warehousing also had a decline of 21,500. Uh, I do believe a lot of the information is coming from those kind of tech layoffs that we're yeah. starting to see. Yeah. A lot of those tech companies that overhired during those periods. But one thing I will say about tech, kind of jumping ahead here, is you know looking at professional and business service. They still need tech employees. Oh, so yeah. you know yeah. you could see kind of some shift from information to you know professional and business services. So you know there's still jobs out there, which is nice. But uh, looking again, transportation warehousing, as I said, they hit, had a decline of 21,500. The unemployment rate came in at 3.6 percent. That was above the expectation of 3.4 percent. But the reason for, or part of the reason for that increase, was the participation rate actually increased to 62.5 percent. This is a positive as it was the highest level since March 2020. It still does remain the pre-pandemic level of 63.3%, though. On the inflation front, was happy to see that the increase in average hourly earnings of 4.6% missed the estimate of 4.8%. This is higher than last month's 4.4% gain, but just point out, most of 2022, we actually saw gains of over 5%, so we're seeing, you know, a slower rate of gains, which is, uh, in my opinion, a positive. Now, overall, the report may have been too optimistic for the market and could fuel further fears of more rate increases. I do continue to believe the labor market will continue to see gains, but at a much softer rate than the last couple of years. I mean, I just got to say, there's nothing really that, that concerns me majorly in this report. Yeah, it wasn't a <clears throat> a bad report, a great report. And as I talked about, we're now in the bizarre world to where good is bad and bad is good. Uh, the, the important thing is how is uh, Federal Reserve Powell going to look at this? 
And yeah, unemployment uh, went up to 3.6%. Yeah, that's quote unquote a positive for increasing interest rates that you may not do that. More jobs there. Participation rates getting better. Um, but the job was at the um, uh, higher wages, uh, our early earnings not going up as quickly could be a positive. But I don't know if that was enough. It's only about 0.2%. Uh, but there's other factors that have come out. So I, I think this was an okay report. I don't think it was, you know, a like a wow, everything's great. Unemployment went down, wages going way up. Um, those other things we'll look at. I think this coming week, I think we have CPI coming out this coming week. Yeah, yeah so. I mean, that's going to be a big one, obviously, to yep. kind of see where the inflation front is at. And you know, I was, was going to say too, the, the participation rate is it's it's really important in my opinion as well from a supply side of the equation. The reason that it is so important is. One way to help with inflation is increasing supply. Yes. Well, if you can get more kind of people coming into the labor market, that also creates less competition essentially for employers, which then will slow wage inflation and in theory should help with the supply side in the economy, help push down inflation. So the participation rate is a huge factor. And I was looking back to in the last 10 years, if you go back to like the early 2000s, the participation rate was actually over like 66%. Yeah. And I know we've had a aging kind of um, demographic with the baby boomers. But they should be out of that uh, participation rate because I don't, I don't know how they look at it, but I would That's imagine true. over 65, well, you no longer should be participating. So I, I don't know what the parameters are that they use on that, mm -hmm. but I was thinking the same thing. Uh, so the market is probably smaller because people have gotten older. And the other thing, too, that uh, people incarcerated. They come out of that as yep. well. So, uh, and I, and I guess if they're getting out of prison, then that would increase the number of people there. So, and the other um, one you can look at that's <clears throat> just very simplistic is the employment to population level. Yeah, that one kind of would show you the the effects of an aging economy because if you just have people that are retired, let's say, yeah, I mean they're not going to be looking for work, but we still need a good chunk of our population to be working. Number one, to pay into social security, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and number two, as I said, it kind of helps increase the supply of goods and services in our economy, which, you know, unfortunately a lot of politicians I don't think look at, but that is rather than destroying demand, increasing supply would in theory help with inflation. Yeah. yeah. I've been a big advocate of increasing the, increasing the supply because more supply would meet the demand and over demand and then they would actually bring down the, uh, the the prices, uh, but unfortunately, that's not one of the tools that the Fed has. Fed only has a few tools, and that's to raise rates, and they have some other things, too, they can use, but that's, that's their main tool, uh, whereas the government side is the one that should be actually saying, how can we increase production and, and everything else so that the, the supply will go up, but the government, you know, actually, they're kind of looking the other side. I, I haven't read the whole thing yet about increasing taxes. That's not the way to do it. So. No, and it, as you kind of said, you know, people, you know, I don't necessarily agree with Fed Chair Powell, I, I do think he's in a very tough spot. Yeah. Because as I said, the Fed's only real tool to, to beat inflation is to destroy demand. Yeah. And, and that it's and it's kind of, you know, I, I kind of equate it to it's, you know, kind of a rough comparison. But, you know, if a train's going down a road and it's going to kill 2,000 people, do you flip the switch and only kill two people? Yeah. And it, it's, you know, a very extreme example, but it's kind of what the Fed has. It's like, well, do we keep letting inflation run rampant or do we pull the switch, have some people become laid off and help the broader base economy and cool inflation? And and, and again, people, the voters kind of did this. I, I don't get too political here, but based on who we vote into offices, 
did we vote in people in offices that they're causing this problem and the Fed has no other choice but then to kill those two people in your trade analogy rather than 2,000 people. Because again, I, I, he's talked about we'll probably have to lay off about 2 million people. Well, that's not his fault. It's what he has to do. Who could fix that was a government by reducing the regulations, uh, not giving out so much money, not making it easy for people not to work. That's the thing. If we could get people back to work, it'd be better. We're looking for an admin assistant in our office and it's the response has been terrible. And I think before last year, I got more response, but people weren't showing up because they just wanted to say <laughs> that they put the application in. When I think you've already booked three meetings and two of them just haven't shown up. Uh, four and uh, only one has shown up. Okay. Yeah. So, so even worse than I thought. <laughs> yeah, worse than you thought. And, and, it, and it's just, and, and the number of applications coming in is lower now. And it's just, uh, I, you know, there's people out there and... With people not showing up, I just don't. I just don't get that, you know. And then you get a good conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I'll be dressed. Oh yeah, and then just no show. Yeah, I just don't understand. And it, it, it I, that's honestly where again, if we can shift to getting people back into actually looking for jobs. Yes, that's where you can kind of help resolve. I think a lot of problems in the labor market. You know, and it used to be that you really appreciate the job. Like, wow, I'm so happy I got a job. Now it's just like a lot of the attitudes are well. What are you going to do for me? Exactly. What are you going to do for me? You just give it to me. I don't want to work for it. Just give it to me. And and, and that's, a, I think, a bad scenario that's been set up uh, with people. So, well, well, let's move on here because uh, we, we could talk about that a lot longer, but I think we got the gist out there that uh, uh, what's going on with the, the job market there. And we, we again, we did, didn't talk about the Jolts report that came out uh, previously. Uh, still 10.8 million open jobs out there as well, I think was the number. So still, still, still decent there. But let's talk about the, the big news that came out yesterday was uh, SVB Bank, also known as Silicon Valley Bank, was closed by regulators. At first thought, this sounds scary since this is the first bank closure since Washington Mutual backed during the Great Recession. But when one digs deep uh, under the assets, uh, what this bank held, it really is no surprise as they were very, very speculative. The assets of $212 billion pale in comparison to such banks as J.P. Morgan Chase with $4 trillion in assets, but also the quality of assets or the lack thereof is what caused this bank's failure. Yeah, looking at this, many of the assets were for either venture capitalists or startup companies in the risky tech and life science world. The bank was also very loose with its valuations where they would loan on the equity value before the stock would even go public. They also went as far to loan against wineries, wine inventories which accounted for 2% of the asset value of the bank. It's important to note that when the economy slows down, that is when all the speculative businesses come to light. It's important to understand that the big banks will not follow this road because they base loans on true assets and income and, quite frankly, are much more diversified in their yeah. deposit base. And, and Chase, we talked about this like uh, a year or two ago, like uh, with all the fee money and so forth, that will eventually come back to reality. Yeah. And what's going to happen is that the, the that's when the curtain comes down, you see, you know, what's really going on. And there's a lot of these companies and banks like this. Uh, what was one? Silvergate yep. uh, doing all the crypto. They're, they're, I think they're done too. I, I, I think. I would assume, yeah. yeah. I, they they kind of got taken over in the news cycle with, <laughs> right, know, with, with Silicon yeah, Valley. Right, right. Last week they were the news. Now it's it's Silicon Valley Bank. Right. And, and, and Silver... Uh, Silvergate, again, a lot of S's here, uh, they were dealing primarily in crypto, which was speculative and is speculative. So they, they, they're having trouble. I believe they were failed or taken over. Then this uh, Silicon Valley Bank, well, they've done the same thing by trying to get too risky. And I, and I saw some information on this 
Bank that 88% of Forbes' 2022 next billion dollar startups are at SVB clients. 50%, around 50% of all US VC bank tech and life science companies bank with SVB and 44% of US VC bank companies with an IPO in 2022 were SVB clients. I mean, they were really digging into the venture capitalists, the startup. I mean, and that's just risky. And, and it's fine when all that money's out there and the economy's doing well, but now that things are slowing down a little bit, that's when your your venture capitalists and your startups don't do well. And kind of the overarching problem, the way I understand it currently, is, again, you talked about their businesses. Well, again, capital started to dry up. Yeah. So what do these people or these businesses that had money at Silicon Valley Bank need? Well, we're burning cash flow. Well, to pay our employees, we need to start taking out deposits. Yeah. So you're starting to reduce deposits. Well, then that also created more concern, and other people started to pull deposits. It's, it's a good old-fashioned bank run. Then the big problem was Silicon Valley actually went out and bought a bunch of assets. That's what banks do. They take in right. deposits, and then they either lend it out or they'll buy other things that they can try and earn interest on. Well, they went a little too far, and they bought too much long-dated securities. I think they bought a bunch of bonds when the 10-year note was at like 1%. So what happened was they're like, uh-oh, we don't have enough in deposits to cover our assets. They had to sell off assets. Well, you sell assets when the 10-year note was at 1%, now it's at close to 4%. Well, they had to take a $2 billion hit on that portfolio because they had to sell at a loss. This just created this huge implosion of the bank. And I, and I wonder, like, why were they buying back then long-term treasuries? Why were you not buying short-term treasuries? And And this is mistakes that obviously somebody, the CFO or somebody, then the banking side made a silly mistake. Do they think that rate's going to stay that way forever? Um, bad decisions cause bad problems, especially as we always talk about during difficult times. I mean, I just, it, honestly, it's idiotic yeah. to, to buy a 10-year treasury at 1%. What, you couldn't get the one month? I, I forget what it was, but what, even half a percent? Who cares about the half percent? Yeah, you yeah. Know? And, like, well, and, and back, or even a six-month treasury, you, you'd probably get back then maybe a half percent. So <clears throat> what is the difference of getting 1% or half percent? And and we knew. I mean, we talked about rates going up. You, you're telling me that these supposedly smart people at, at Silicon Valley Bank did not know that rates were going up? I mean... I, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Well, here's the result is now they've been taken over. And, uh, you know, we talk about people will get their $250,000, but there could be companies, startup companies that had a million dollars with them. That could be a problem because they need that money back. And now they're, they're, no, they're only at 250000 I think they have notes and maybe dividends, but that's going to come after the FDIC goes through the bank to find out what is really here. And I think they're going to find out there's no assets there that are worthwhile because of the fact that they're, again, winery, you know, winery. How do you liquidate that? How do you liquidate Well, you pour it out the bottles. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing, I guess, I guess, the other thing that, you know, normally happens is you can have like a JP Morgan maybe right. come in and, and, and save the Silicon Valley Bank. But they don't want I it. don't think I would want a no. loan against wine inventory. I, 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 I mean, that essentially is what's going to have to happen is some bank is going to want to buy their loan portfolio. That right. That's what the asset <laughs> is. That's what could generate enough capital. I I, I don't know. And, and then also, too, they, you know, they, they were the thing about loaning against the equity value, the future equity value. Well, that was based on a year or two ago when things were better. 
now IPOs are way down. Yep. You don't do an IPO now, so now that value is gone. So it, it, it's just going to be a, a major problem. Um, I don't see any bank coming in and take them over. Like JP Morgan did take over Washington Mutual, uh, and I do believe the, uh, was that 212 billion, I think was this, was the the biggest because Washington Mutual wasn't that big at that time. I think it was honestly close though. And I, I think it's close. Like two, yeah. And also adjusting for obviously inflation. I mean, yeah. you know, Washington Mutual all else right. equal in the same amount of dollars, real dollars accounting for inflation would have been larger. But the other thing too is I, I just, I don't know if the government will come in and help. I, I've, I've seen calls that we may need government intervention because the only other way that a JP Morgan would be interested in, let's say, buying this is if they got some help help from the government. Because if I'm JP, why in the heck would I want to buy this? And my feeling is that I don't think the government should come in and do this because the FDIC, okay, we're paying 250000 That's what you're going to get. Um, this bank was the, the Wild West. And, it, and it's just not, it was not the right thing to do. Where the regulators are, this bank was probably too small to be regulated, to really look at it. You, you said you kind of looked for- I was um, trying to find the stress test, and I know that test. they changed uh, this bank back it in like- It could have been just under the level of doing yeah. the stress test. And and the, 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 the thing too is that I, I want people to know that this is not the start of a yeah. bank failures going forward. This is an exclusive thing to where these guys were way out there in left field, uh, loaning against risky assets, doing startups, doing VCs. That's a very risky market. I, I meant to look it up. I didn't see it. Uh, I didn't get time to do it. But how many venture capitalists actually succeed? I don't think it's a high number. And that's what this bank was dealing with. So so don't think this is the start of something. There could be another crypto bank out there maybe. I, think, I still think there's more to fall for the crypto side. That keeps falling. But uh, this was just a rare instance. And, and all our other banks, I think, are pretty well, strong. And you look at the deposit base again. It, it's it's much more diversified. The reason this was so bad, it was all in the same field. That one field gets hit. Yeah. You're screwed. I mean, you look at, you know, again, the JP Morgan's Bank of America's Wells Fargo's, they have a diversified deposit base and they do have some money in venture capital. Yeah. But it's not their only business. <laughs> no, not their only business at all. So it, it, they could take a little hit or it honestly might help them a little bit as well because now there's one less competitor out there that needs, you know, venture capital still needs money right. to go. It, there's a lot less money in venture capital now, but they still need that business to find a bank essentially. So it, it'll be interesting to see. And as I said, I'm not worried about a contagion or anything like that. I, I think, you know, we've seen these big banks go through these stress tests, which include like, uh, gosh, a huge spike in unemployment, a crash in the commercial real estate, a crash in residential real estate, a crash in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about like a 40% crash. And it's these right. huge, huge numbers. And the, the, the banks show that they're well capitalized. Silicon Valley, again, clearly not well capitalized and the loans were very risky. I, I just, I don't see this spreading. I, as you said though, I, I do think, I was talking to a client yesterday, I think there's going to be more to fall. And I, more, I think- More banks? Not more fall? banks, but there's going to be, oh, well, I guess perhaps more banks. And I think I again, they're highly I, leveraged, like right. like regional banks. I, that, I don't think there's going to be more banks, but there might be one or two other risky cases out like this, but I don't want to scare people like, oh, more banks will fall. I don't think more not banks- Not the big banks. No. No, but I, I do think there could be, again, something else out there that, you know, that we've never heard of, like a, a small, because I've never heard of Silicon Valley no. Bank until this whole thing blew up, because it's not even on our radar. This is a very risky thing, but I think you could start seeing other companies that might surprise people that were over leveraged. Now all of a sudden things slow down. I, I think you're going to start to see the, the froth in the market start to come to fruition. I think there's going to be some companies that really struggle, and I think people over the next five years are going to see 
I didn't think that company was going to go bankrupt. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think so. And they'll say the same thing. And I just kind of looked to see, and I think this stock was, I, I can't find it, but I, I think it was up to like 160, 170 and all the speculation, everything else. That's why we talk about buy your food companies, look at the fundamentals, look at the financial statements, because I, this stock was just, it's one of those things like, oh yeah, they're going up, they're going up. And and it just, it's the hype and it just doesn't work. And I just last comment, now we got a couple other things. I was just gonna say, I don't want to scare people when I say that. Yeah, well, you kind of scare people saying, "Oh, the bank's gonna fall." You don't want you want to be careful. Well, I, I think there's other crypto banks and other other kind of shadow banks out there right. that that aren't subject to these regulations. Small, smaller, smaller ones. banks. Right. That the big banks are not going to fold. I want to be very clear about that. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised to see some other smaller ones that that did some risky stuff like this fold. The the risk that got people through and made all the excitement is going to start unfolding and people are going to, I think, be left surprised. And that's why we don't do any of that. That's why we <laughs> stick to our safe companies because it's not only going to be banks. There's going to be other companies and other fields that over leveraged themselves, took on too much risk, and they will fold as well. I mean, we saw it with Carvana already. Right. There's going to be other companies like that that do do have similar problems. And, and the other thing, too, that the media will take this and run with it because it's very scary. They're going, oh, you don't burn. And they will probably focus on this, I'm going to say, for the next few days and, and the bad stuff of, you know, and I saw, I think, the Wall Street Journal this morning to get to read it, but, you know, people lined up outside New York. I, I didn't know they had a branch in New York, but outside New York waiting for their money. They want to show that. They want to show that negativity. And then it's going to be like the companies afterwards. So if there's another bank, it could be a $50 billion yeah. bank. Yeah. Oh, here's another one. You know, so they're going to find it because it's going to happen when things slow down. I know what the saying is. When the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. That's what that, it is. That's yeah. the saying. Yeah. So, and that's what's going to happen. But it's not going to be your big banks. All your big banks, they've gone through the stress test. They've done great. Uh, and, and actually, one thing this did do that was positive was it did bring down the prices of all banks. <laughs> and so there was actually some buying opportunities on Friday. Did we did we buy our bank on, on Thursday and Friday? On th yeah, on Thursday and Friday. So so we took advantage of that because we're saying, hey, our banks are safe. Where are they going to be 12, 18, 24 months from now, not over the next week or two? So um, just some, some investment advice for people to kind of look for some good banks. The easy money's done with. you got to be really, really selective as things are going to get more difficult. Yeah. Spent a lot of time on that, but I think it was very important. Uh, we do want to talk about stock buybacks. Uh, the 1% excise tax the government imposed uh, this year on companies who are doing stock buybacks has not seemed to change the course of companies buying back their stock. Through February 17th, $220 billion of stock buybacks were authorized by companies, which was an all-time record. And we continue to support stock buybacks by companies as long as they are buying their stock back at a good price and not borrowing money to implement the buyback. And, you know, they do help increase your ownership in the company. They help drive earnings per share, sales per share. If there's less shares, there's more earnings to go around to that particular share, essentially. So that's why there's a benefit to it. And, you know, I kind of think it's funny that Warren Buffett came out. Mm -hmm. And Warren Buffett has historically leaned left right. and been liberal. But he said people that don't think stock buybacks are beneficial are, I think he said, economically illiterate. Illiterate <laughs> or a demagogue. <laughs> a political demagogue. Yep. Which, and I, I had to look that up because I know what it meant. And what it means is that you are taking advantage of the situation to sway people to your political side. Mm. So they're jumping on the bandwagon saying, yes, yes, we gotta get these big CEOs and, and, and get after them and so forth. And it's just like, no, that's not gonna do it. And actually the, the buybacks this year are expected to maybe top $1 trillion. Yeah. Um, and then there is talk from the other side, the political side that, oh, 
well, we need to raise that now to 3 or 4%, which is, no, that's not the right thing to do. You're hurting a lot of people, have money in pension plans and everything else. And, and Warren Buffett also said it doesn't really hurt the CEOs. It hurts more the shareholders that are your main times, your mom and pops. Well, that's what cracks Listeners me up. Listeners of our show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what cracks me up is people are like, oh, it just benefits the CEOs. And it's like, well, it benefits the CEOs because they own more shares than yeah. other people. But proportionately, yeah. But I still don't care. If the CEO is making a lot of money and I'm making money off this talk, I don't care if they're making a lot of money as long yeah. as my returns are good. <laughs> and, and I said last week on my segment on KUSI, I, I wish everybody bought buy equity. So maybe you can't buy as many as the CEO does, but why are you not investing in the great companies and take advantage of it? And that, that one reason I know why people don't do it, oh, it's, it's, it's been you know a year and I, I didn't make any money. Don't worry about a year. Look 10 years, 20 years down the road. If you're a younger person and you can only invest $100 or $150 a month, by all means, do it because that is going to grow for you. But do it in good quality businesses. Don't go after the Silicon Valley banks that are like, oh, wow, they're the hype and so forth. Don't, don't do that. And but, I was, I was just going to yeah. say, too, it, it kind of parlaying off what you were saying about the, the younger investors and so forth is it's hard to go through these periods. We haven't really seen it. COVID was too quick. Yes. We haven't yes. really seen. Now we're like little over a year of this difficult market but it is really my opinion that during periods like this this is where real investors shine and also where most of the wealth is created yep. because if you sell you panic you go out you go into t-bills you go into savings accounts you're not going to get back in until things are better and yeah you might not be buying at the absolute bottom maybe things go lower but again you look three four years down the road the difference of having an eight to ten percent compounded growth on that versus getting just four percent on a t-bill it's huge right I mean, that's double it's a huge impact and this is really where real investors again make the most money it's not when things are good because anybody can make money when things are good right oh exactly uh let's promote the newsletter because uh, a lot of this information does come from our newsletter go to our website smartinvesting2000.com that's smartinvesting2000.com you go to the page Right there, about in the middle next to the podcast, you'll see newsletter. Click on that. You can sign up for it. It is free. It goes out every Friday at uh, 5 o'clock, I believe is about when it goes out. And uh, it's become very popular because a lot of great information that you can read in probably four to five minutes and, and become very knowledgeable about different things going on in the investment and economic world. Phone numbers here. All lines are open. 833-288-0973. That's 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. I do want to address the oil companies a little bit here, Chase. Uh, oil companies have made a lot of changes over the last couple of years and are being run more as a business, looking at profits and cash flow rather than just production. It was estimated in uh, 2019 that 15% of executive bonus compensation was based on production goals. By 2022, that was just 6%. The companies are now looking more at free cash flow which 18% of the incentive will come from hitting those goals up dramatically from 7% in 2019. There are also more incentives now for hitting environmental, health, and, and safety goals for their employees as well. This will probably hurt production going forward with estimated growth of only 3% this year. Looking at it from a business perspective, it makes more sense to run your business based on cash flow and profits rather than just production. And I will say I don't agree with it, but this is where, again, a lot of liberals and Democrats say that, oh, you know, this is why we can't do stock. They need to be investing more in the production. 
But if the economic case doesn't make sense for them to right. invest in it, they're crushing their shareholders. And I guarantee you, if they tanked gas prices, tanked oil prices because they pushed out all this production, they went bankrupt. Nobody's coming in to save them. <laughs> no one's going to rescue them. You're right. And and, and it, it, I think they are a business, and they do have things they have to follow, and they have shareholders who are responsible as shareholders who are responsible too, and it should be run as a business. And actually, General Motors did the same thing years ago where they just, we want to be the biggest company, the biggest company, we want to manufacture the most cars. What happened? 2008, they went bankrupt. Yep. You can't go down that path. You have to run the business and do a good job. Now, uh, again, they, they're doing production. The production are going up, but they're not just doing it because, and they've done this every time. They would increase production dramatically. All this uh, supply would come online. Prices would fall, and they have financial problems. This time they're saying, wait a minute. Let's not do it this time. Let's be more reasonable with yeah. how we do the production so we are a business first for profits, and we're going to compensate our CEOs not on production but on the growth and the running of the business. What a, what a wise thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what the government should want, but the government, like, they don't see that. Uh, I I, I – I, sometimes I just question the, the economic intelligence of a lot of the people in the government. Well, and I, I, I do see their point. I don't agree with their point. The, but the, I, the government's point. Yeah, about how, you know, if we invested more in production, then, well, obviously, oil prices, gas prices would be lower. But the problem is, as you said, is if all of a sudden it spikes way up and then earnings, free cash flow fall off a cliff, these companies go bankrupt— well, then we're in a really big problem because now production is going to fall off a cliff if all these companies go bank. It's just very short-sighted. And the other thing, too, that I, these companies, and, you know, you've heard the Chevron say, why would I invest in production when you guys don't even want oil Right. five to ten years <clears throat> from now? When it takes years to actually build the ability to start now finding that oil, producing that oil, then converting it to – this is a huge life cycle. By the time they start the investments now, in the next five years, if they don't want gasoline anymore – well, that was a waste of an investment. You're not going to be able to monetize that investment. So there's this, this dichotomy between their argument, and it really hurts a lot of the, these oil companies. And that's where, again, as an investor, I want to make sure they have good free cash flow. I want to make sure they have good earnings before you jump into that investment. And if you look back in history, you'll find that over the years, oil companies did invest their money in other uh, categories, and they didn't pan out so well. Yeah. They actually lost money when they broke even on. Yeah, and I was going to say, a lot of these oil companies now, too, they are investing in other areas as well, but they still need that earnings and cash flow from the, the oil side of the business or the gasoline side of the business to then invest into, you know, like a biodiesel or, right. you know, another type of, you know, electricity type business, hydrogen type businesses like Exxon. Mobile, who many people may hate because they're, you know, all oh, big mm -hmm. bad oil company. Well, they still are investing in other green businesses to try and diversify that company as well. So they need that cash flow. They need those earnings right. to then be able to invest in the future and, and kind of help with a, you know, transition to less non renewable right. type sources. And we need oil for not just for cars, so but much. also for so many things. There's like 4,000 different items. I mean, asphalt. Uh, chemicals, perfumes, all these things that, that you need petroleum for, and, and people just don't realize that, oh, those big, bad oil companies. But I will say, too, I think the best returns on the oil companies has passed. Um, we still hold in our portfolio, but we don't expect the big gains like we got before. I think now you'll see more tempered gains, more reasonable gains going forward. So And collect the dividends. Don't forget don't forget about those dividends. Yeah. So, All right, phone numbers here, 833-288-288. 0973 that's 833 
888-288-0973. I see our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, is waiting. So let's talk to Harrison because I, I want to go to this guy. I saw his topic. Uh, Harrison, you with us yet? I am, yes. Okay. It, it scared me. Big tax bill? Uh, here, here are some causes and solutions. <laughs> I don't want to hear about big tax bill. I want a small tax bill. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> um, so first of all, usually the tax filing date is April 15th. Um, this is the day you have to have your taxes filed and any taxes you owe are due. However, due to all the winter storms that we've been having, uh, most Californians are automatically having their federal and state tax filing and payment deadline moved until October 16th. Um, this is also going to apply to 2023 quarterly estimated tax payments for quarters one, two, and three. So October 16th is a new tax filing day. Um, eligibility goes by county, but most counties qualify. There's only a, a few that don't. Um, so secondly, there's a difference between the tax payment or refund you get and how well your tax planning went for the year. So for example, just because you're getting a refund doesn't mean you successfully reduced your tax liability or just because you have to make a payment doesn't mean you made a mistake. So tax planning is about getting your taxable income and adjusted gross income to the appropriate levels by the end of the year every year. And ultimately, they are what determines how much taxes you will pay. Your tax payment or refund, on the other hand, is based on how much you had withheld during the year, and it does not impact how much taxes you owe. So if you have an annual tax liability of $10,000, we'll say, but you make estimated payments of only $8,000 through the year, you're going to owe an extra $2,000 when you file. However, if you make payments of $12,000 through the year, you're going to get a $2,000 refund when you file. So at the end of the day, $10,000 is still what you owe. The refund or payment does not affect that. So the goal should be to have a plan on reducing that $10,000 actual tax liability you have, and then from there, adjust your withholdings or your estimated tax payments to align with that to get your uh, tax payment or refund as close to zero as possible. It's funny. I think a lot of people focus too much on the refund. Where yeah, you, I just kind of said it's an emotional thing. Where I think some people honestly would rather pay, you know, let's just say twelve thousand dollars in taxes in the year and get a two thousand dollar refund than pay ten thousand dollars in taxes in the year and have to owe a thousand dollars at the end of it. <laughs> and what I would think is yeah, funny, I, uh, uh, funny when they they say, "Oh, my tax guy's great. He got me like two thousand dollars back on a refund," but they don't realize that's what they had withheld and yeah. stuff like that. So. That's kind of crazy how people look at it. Yeah, I think a lot of people for a long time, um, you know, before we had some of the tax changes that we had in 2018 and 2020, a lot of the withholdings, the W-4s and things like that, um, overwithheld. And so a lot of people didn't worry about their tax situation because they were consistently getting refunds every year. So they thought things were going well. And now, after the W-4s change and after some of the, the ways the calculations for um, estimated payments are, people are starting to owe a little bit. So they think something is wrong. They think they're doing something wrong. And, you know, you don't want to owe too much at the end of the year because then you can have penalties for underwithholdings. But, um, you know, people focus too much on the refund or the payment they're making as opposed to, you know, what their taxable income is or what their AGI was. So you can ask somebody, hey, what, what was your refund last year? Oh, I got $2,000 back. Um, okay, what was your taxable income? 
oh, I have no idea. Right. Well, <laughs> taxable income is what matters. And yes. so, you know, from a year-to-year basis, that's the number that you should be playing with. And if you get a refund or you owe taxes, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's much more to, you know, actually impactful to, you know, make sure your AGI is at the right level and your taxable income is at the right level. Well, Harrison, um, people, and again, this is one thing you do when you do the financial planning is you actually look at the taxes. You can actually explain to them the, the differences here. Uh, if they want to contact you, we're going to give the information for them because it is one thing as a financial planner you look at is the taxes as well. So uh, thanks for joining us this morning, and uh, we'll see you on Monday morning. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. All right. Sounds good. All right, again, that's uh, Harrison Johnson. He is our financial planner, our CFP. If you want to contact him, two ways you can do it. One, call out the office, 858 858- Five four six four three zero six. That's eight five eight five four six four three zero six. Or go to our website, smartinvesting two thousand dot com. That's smartinvesting two thousand dot com. Just send him an email, and you can get a free consultation with him about a true financial plan. Alrighty, phone numbers here eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three. Two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go to the calls here. Let's go out to speak with Susan. I don't know what she's calling from, but uh, Susan, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Is Susan there? Did Susan hang up? One more time for Susan. All right, no. Well, Susan, if you're if you're listening, give us a call back. We'll, we'll get to you. Let's go out, out to another one. Uh, not sure where he's calling from. Uh, let's go to Joseph. Joseph, you're on the Smart Investing Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hi, Brent and Chase. Great show this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm from Cleveland originally. I'm in San Diego now. So I've been aware of a a bank out there called Key Bank. I believe the symbol's K-E-Y. And I I heard what you were saying earlier about there may be some, some value in some of these banks whose stock has dropped recently. And I'm, I'm in city right now, but a uh, big bank, but I'm, I'm, I've been curious about KeyBank for some time, and I'm wondering what your opinion is. You, you know, KeyBank, because I'm from back east, I remember them as well, and actually it's Key Corp uh, who owns them. And you do bring up a good point, because we were talking about the, the big money center banks, who know there's some safety there, but if you can find a small regional bank, it probably got beat up more, could be more potential gains. So let's look at a Key Corp. Their symbol is K-E-Y is their symbol. They're in the regional bank industry. Only 2.6% float, 85% institutional owned. Nice P-E ratio, 8.2 versus 9.2. Price of sales, 2.1 versus 2. Price to book value, 1.8 versus 3.4. That's very important for for banks. Price to cash flow, 3.3 versus 10.2. And the peg ratio, and the lower the number, the better, 1.3 versus 9.8. Now, one thing you want to check out here, I'm not sure why, but in their first quarter, uh, they were down 26.7%. The industry was down 9.6. I say first quarter, that's actually the last quarter of 2022. Uh, Their sales were down 0.2%, industry up 2.5. They do have a five-year growth rate of 6% versus the industry at 3.5. That's a positive. Now, here's a nice dividend, 5.2%. And they only use 41% of their earnings to pay that out. They've had 10 consecutive years of growth on that dividend, another positive. Now, the balance sheet's a little bit different because they're a banking company. Uh, debt to equity, 1.8, above the industry at 1.2. Net profit margin, 27.3 versus 25.3. And return on equity, 13.4 
versus 10.4. Chase, what do you got going forward here? Yeah, so current price here for Oregon Key Corp is $15.66. Yeah, look at this 52-week high here, $24.71, and the low, $14.96. Not surprised that that did actually hit its low, looks like, yesterday. Yesterday. That's what I was thinking. Year-to-date, stock's down 9%. Over the last five days, though, again, down 15% just over that last week. So that's obviously a pretty big opportunity potentially to, mm-hmm. to find some good quality companies i did see some regional banks down like 20 30 percent yesterday and i saw some of them recovered a little bit but yeah i mean key corp looks like it was only down about two and a half percent yesterday not the 20 30 percent like the regionals right but looking forward to december 2024 i do see estimated earnings per share of two dollars and twenty cents would give us a target sell price of 36 dollars and 52 cents i mean it trades at a forward pe of about seven also, too, looking at growth, it looks like earnings are estimated to grow about 4% this year and then close to 10% next year based off those analyst estimates. I mean, that, that's pretty good growth for a company, especially with a, a seven times earnings multiple. So, I mean, I like the numbers here, but kind of reverting back to the beginning of the show, I just would want to understand, again, where's their deposit base? Who have they lent money to? Just making sure, again, they are secure. Do they go through the stress test? You know, right. what are their type of regulations just to make sure they're they're not at a high risk bank, essentially. And I'd be a little bit patient because you might want to see what the numbers come out because you've got 21 analysts. Are they going to lower their earnings? Yep. And they should not. Their earnings should not lower at all if it's based on what the true fundamentals of the bank are. But just to be on the safe side, you probably want to really dig a, a deep dive into it. I like Key Corp. I think there's some good potential there. I like that dividend. But you just want to make sure there's no surprises that, oh, shoot, now they've got you know, a winery and they're based on the value based on the wine. So, you know, but uh, I, I think my sister worked for Key Corp back and I'm from upstate New York. Uh, so I know the bank. I remember the bank and always have done pretty much the right thing. And and don't think longevity is safety because that can also change things, too. Well, just kind of point that out is looking at Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, it's not like they were a new bank. They were founded in the 80s. Oh, they were? Yeah. I mean, it's not like as long as some of the other banks, right, but right. that's still like 40 years. I mean, that's yeah. a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's worth the research. I really like it. And, and uh, I, I we don't have much cash in our portfolio, but I think if we had cash in our portfolio, I'd be looking at a regional bank because yeah. I think there is some big opportunities here. And Key Corp, I think, is worth the research there. Already? And in terms of the re- looming uh, potential recession, is, is that... Is that a bigger issue with banks or a less issue with banks compared to the other types of uh, corporations? Well, I, we've talked many times about how you know we see the slowdown, but there's a lot of excess money still in savings there. The job market is still pretty strong, so we don't see a major recession. We're going through a slowdown, and this is why you're seeing companies like a Silicon Valley bank have problems because we're going through a slowdown. But I do not see a major recession. It's very hard to have a major recession when people are still have jobs. And the hard part as well is these banks can rally during a recession. What yeah. I mean by that is they're like looking over the last one year, Key Corp is down 32%. They're kind of factoring in not just obviously the Silicon Valley situation. Before that, they were still falling from their highs because of fears over a recession. I mean, that's one thing that, that people are oh, we're going to have a recession. I better sell and get out until the yeah. recession stops. Well, things are going to rally mm-hmm. 
when we're in the recession because the market's always forward looking. And yeah, I mean, banks aren't going to be immune, of course, if we have a recession. But as Brent said, I I don't think we're going to have a major recession. I I think they've written off a lot of loans. I know the big banks have. I'm curious if Key Corp has has written off some loans, which hurt their earnings in the past. Mm -hmm. That could be a benefit going forward as well. Yeah. So I think it's worth the research there, Joseph. Take a look at it. Uh, I think it's a a good potential. Already? I will. Great. Uh, Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, that opens the phone line, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. I see Susan's back, so let's try Susan again. Susan, you're on the Smart Investor over in Chase. How can we help you? Susan? I wonder if, uh, yeah, we, we, I, I know she hung up and called back, so I don't know if she's on a cell phone. We can't get it, so we're trying one more time. Susan, I... And and uh, can can you hear when she calls in? Oh, so she's just calling in. So you're not. Uh, yeah. So Susan, there might be some issue on your phone line. I I apologize, but we'll we'll try again here uh, in the future. Uh, let's go out to or up to San Marcos and speak with Phil. Phil, you're in the Smart Investor, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hey guys, how's it going? Good. How you doing? Good. Hey, great event last weekend. Well, thank um, you. I do not own any. I used to, and I've been watching it come down. Uh, local company, Qualcomm, QCOM. Okay, you changed it on us there. You, we had a different <laughs> company down on the, the screen here, but you want to look at Qualcomm. Well, actually, the, the screener never came came on. I was, I was oh. waiting for him. Okay, he's okay. so he, he's got his hands up. He's having, I guess, some issues over there. Okay, so, all right, so that's why we're not seeing what we normally do. So I think he may have called about... Uh, but MP materials maybe last time, and so I think I remember that. But you want to talk about Qualcomm, uh, so yes. yeah. So and I'm, I I do want to look at Qualcomm as well because you know they've been having some troubles. I want to see what's going on with them. So Qualcomm symbol is QCOM. They're in the semiconductor industry. Only 0.8 percent floats, and we're shorting the stock. Institutional owns 76 percent. PE ratio 11, which is a very nice number for Qualcomm versus 19.9 for the industry. Price to sales three versus 4.5. Price to book value 19.9. The industry's at 297. That is price of tangible book value, by the way. And price of cash flow 12.9 versus 13.3. I'm disappointed they don't have a peg ratio going forward. I'm not sure why that is, but uh, they don't show that. Uh, we do see earnings over the last year are up 19.6% below the industry growth at 245 Sales are up 19.2% better than the industry at 5%. And here's something that concerns me. The five-year estimated growth from the analysts is a negative 7.2% for Qualcomm versus a positive 10 for the industry. I don't know why that is happening, uh, but that's what we're showing. Now, Qualcomm does pay a dividend of 2.6%. They use 28% of their earnings to pay that out. They have grown that dividend dividend for 10 consecutive years. Look at the balance sheet. Uh, current ratio 2.1 versus 2.9. That is good. Debt to equity 0.9 versus 0.6. That's another positive. Net profit margin 27.4. That's above the industry at 22.3. And while return to equity is 62.6 versus 25.8, I'm believing they probably have a very low amount of equity. Chase, what do you got going forward? I'm just going to take a crack at that that five-year growth rate as well. Yeah. Is I do believe a lot of it stemming from this year's this year's decline in semiconductors. We do know that the semiconductors 
are we're down i think like 18.8 percent in the month of january so 2023 is going to be a very tough year i think come the end of this year when you look at that five-year growth rate for a qualcomm or other chip company it's not going to be negative anymore i think you're going to see a nice positive once we exit 2023 and look over the next five years yeah. and i think a lot of, of stock stocks and chip companies ran up a lot last year and now they're kind of reflecting this you can see that in qualcomm stock price current price here 115 dollars and 19 cents 52 week high well that's 161 dollars and 30 cents and the low is 101 dollars and 93 cents when you look at the one year return it's down about 24 percent wow. so you know big pullback there in qualcomm if we go forward though to september 2024 i do see estimated earnings per share of 11 dollars and 62 cents would give us a target sell price of 192 dollars and 89 cents so it trades at a forward pe of about 10 times I mean, that's pretty pretty attractive i do see for 2023 kind of as i was saying earnings are expected to fall 25 percent though but then 2024 they're estimated to re-accelerate 24 percent so this is i think a very tough year for the semiconductor industry and we've not done a deep dive in a qualcomm yet but um, one thing that worries me is on the horizon the china situation i think qualcomm has a lot of dependency on china and if things with China escalate and get worse, this could be difficult for Qualcomm. And that could be why the stock is down of uh, trading at levels currently. Because I uh, the numbers going forward, you said the Ford PE is, what, 10 or 10. something? Yeah, I mean, that's a ph- phenomenal number for Qualcomm. But there's, I think, that cloud of China over there, what's going to go on with China. So When we did see the <clears throat> Biden administration actually did implement some new regulations on chip companies, which included like LAM Research, Applied yeah. Materials, on the equipment they're sending to China. Oh. I don't think China's going to be like, oh, thank you so much. You know? <laughs> I think there's going to be some more kind of back and forth, unfortunately, which these chip companies could kind of get caught up in. Yeah, and that, that's the wild card here, uh, un- unfortunately, Phil, because uh, with China and Taiwan, um, and we, we, you know, Qualcomm's a Sanyo-based company. We want to like it. The numbers look good on it. I just can't get over the China concern. And I will say, I mean, I, I think these chip companies are going to – obviously struggle with the China type situation. But I mean, long term, I'm still very bullish on this sector Yeah, just because we know semiconductors aren't going anywhere there and everything. They kind of got overbought during COVID and a lot of the smartphones and a lot of the PCs and so forth. But, you know, I think we're now kind of having that destocking, which is now starting to get reflected in the stock. But then you all see, I think, a return to growth here going forward. As you said, though, China is a, a wild card that uh, is, is a big risk to right. these stocks. Right. And do you have a comment there, Phil? Yeah, I did. It's curious. I was gravitating toward, like, now it's the analysts are forecasting negative growth. But then, Chase, you mentioned after it goes through the cycle, when we come to maybe the third or fourth quarter, you could see some positive growth just based on the timing of how 2023 shakes out. Is there a perception there um, within the stock market? I I know that I need to do more research, but I'm curious on that angle of it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to a lot of the the CEOs and, you know, I'll talk about the Intel CEO, he's talking about the first six months are going to be tough for the semiconductor industry. And, and, you know, Intel's obviously had their problems, but I still think he's been on top of the semiconductor space. You know, back when COVID first started and there's chip shortages, there's, oh, it's going to be a short-term thing. And he he said that it's going to be a long-term thing. And I do know that there was a lot of kind of demand pull forward with the PCs during COVID, which obviously hit a lot of these companies because now their chips aren't needed. So I, I do think the market is concerned over this and the, the short-term investors are getting out over fears of, you know, maybe Q1, Q2 earnings not being that good. 
But, you know, I think if things stabilize in Q3, Q4, things could turn around. But that's, again, a very short-term perspective, which I frankly don't really care, and I don't want to put it that way, but, you know, I don't really care what happens. If the stock price goes from, we'll call it, what, 115 down to 90, yeah, that's not going to feel good. But if in three, four years from now it's up to 150, 160, oh, that's a pretty darn good return. Who cares they went down at 90? You made a good profit off it in the long term. Yeah, and the, the other thing too, Phil, and then I'll, I'll let you go, is it's, I, I think you just need to know, I, and I want to know more about Qualcomm's products. I know they're, you know, chips and so but what, what you, you know, how, how is China going to affect them? So <clears throat> before we buy any company, it's usually 10, 15, 20 hours of research. That's what it is. We, we want to find out more about those details. And we've not done that yet on Qualcomm. If you're going to buy it, I'd really try to encourage you to really look at what their products are. Will they be affected by China? Because numbers, like this is a screaming buy. Yeah. I'll put it that way. All right? All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. All righty. That opens up the phone line, 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Okay, he's got his number. You got your finger up there. <laughs> okay, I because I, I saw that Susan's there again. Should I try Susan again? You're, you're shaking your head. No. We, we, okay, let's go out to uh, Wayne in San Diego. Wayne, you're in the Smart Investor, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Uh, good morning, gentlemen. I'm curious about the stock. Uh, Ingersoll Rand. The symbol is IR. It's near a 52-week high, but I'm looking for the next couple of years for the infrastructure funding by the uh, in America. But also this week, uh, an analyst went put uh, Caterpillar to a sell. So I guess he's concerned about a worldwide recession. He, 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 yeah, he he could be. And 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 one thing that. I've been kind of looking at, and they're, they're expensive, is the farming industry. The farming industry is really growing. Um, not that we're having more farms, but the technology is Im- improving. And these companies like Ingersoll Rand, uh, and I believe they're the ones that are coming out, with, or I think maybe it's deer, coming out with these deer. yeah, combines and so forth. I think Ingersoll Rand also does, you know, I think tractors and stuff as well. So, uh, but, but let's take a look at it because I, I think it is an interesting company. Again, Ingersoll Rand is a company symbol IR. They're in specialty in industrial machinery. Uh, only 1.8% uh, shares float, 99% institutional owned. PE ratio is high here, 38.8 versus 32.7. Price to sales, 3.9 versus 1.8. Price to book value, 2.5 versus 3. And we do see price of cash flow, 26.6 versus 23.5. Now, they do have a good pig ratio, 2.5 versus 5.9. We do see that their earnings over the last year are up 16.1%, well above that industry of 4.2%. Sales up 14.8%. That's not quite as good as the industry, up 16.5. Now, the five-year growth rate for Ingersoll Rand, 9.9% versus 9.1%. They do pay a, I don't know why they bother, a dividend of 0.1%. <laughs> it's like, why even bother with that? Uh, look at the balance sheet. We do see a current ratio 2.4 versus 1.8. That's good. Debt to equity 0.3 versus 0.7. Very strong balance sheet. Like seeing that. Net profit margin 10.2 versus 6. And return on equity is only 6.6 versus 10.8. That was a, a disappointment for me. Chase, what do you got going forward? Yeah, so current price here for, again, Ingersoll Rand, ticker symbol IR, $55.74. 52-week high, well, it's $60.39. And the low is $39.28. I see year-to-date is still up about 6.7%. But I think part of the reason an analyst could have cut Caterpillar 
is this sector's done very well. I saw Caterpillar actually hit an all-time high, it appears, yeah. earlier this year. So it, it's not like the sector's done poorly and it's getting cut out. It could be overvaluation concerns and a slowdown in growth. Maybe they, they also do have some type of decline in growth. You can't trade at expensive multiples anymore if you're not growing at the same rates. So the sector's done well. And I, I see Ingersoll Rand here. Over the last three years, it's up 134% compared to the S&P 500, up 40%. Over the last five years, it's up 69%. While the S&P's up 50 So it, it's done very well comparatively. And I, I just wonder if maybe this industry is too expensive. And it especially brings up that case as I go out to December 2024, I do see estimated earnings per share of $2.82. Would give us a target sell price of $46.81. I mean, it trades at about 20 times future earnings. It's 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 still an expensive stock. I mean, it, it could be something to keep an eye out for, but I wonder if a lot of that infrastructure play got built into that stock. And now it's kind of starting to fizzle and fade as the earnings may not grow as much as some people had hoped. And, and Wayne, you mentioned that, you know, you know it's high price, but if you buy it in a couple of years, my biggest concern, when I, whatever I would do that, and I, and I don't do that any longer, but when I would do it, like, okay, yeah, it's a great company. Yeah, I know it's expensive, but maybe in two years. My biggest concern is that two years later, you're flat down or up 1%. The, you, you're putting capital towards something that's pricey already, Try to find a business that is on sale, not one that is pretty pricey. And I, I like the company. I like the product. I like everything about it. But you generally don't make good money investing when you pay the higher price for a company. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to say, no, this is probably a sell, not a buy. Uh, and, and who knows? Maybe they, they could have a downgrade or something else. But it would take a lot. Uh, uh, increase in earnings or a big downgrade uh, on the stock to uh, be a buy for and us. And I don't so. want to chase the stock higher and, and no. buy an industry that everybody else likes right now. I mean, kind of, as you know, we're, we're the contrarian investor. I don't want to buy what everybody else is buying. And it seems like everybody's already kind of piled into these, you know, Caterpillars, John Deere's, the Ingersoll Rands of the right. world, and they're, they're just expensive. Yeah. So right. I understand. Uh, about Qualcomm, they, <clears throat> during this week, they announced they're raising the quarterly dividend from 75 cents to 80 cents. So they must have cash to you know pay to the shareholders. Oh yeah, I, I think they have a lot of cash and I, I know they've grown that dividend for 10 consecutive years. I mean, they're doing fine on that. So I, I think Qualcomm's a great company. And that, I if I had to choose without looking at the companies, I would choose a Qualcomm over the Ingersoll ranks. I know the numbers on Qualcomm are on sale. We know Ingersoll rank right. is very expensive, so. Right, uh, Alrighty, I appreciate it, gentlemen. Have a good day. Okay, Wayne, thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. I looked over at the clock, and we, we still see a call. It's unfortunate. we got to let you go there, Tim. Uh, Susan, I don't know whatever happened with Susan. Susan, maybe try next week. Maybe whoever <laughs> issues the phones, we'd love to talk to you. And then someone else called in. Uh, love taking the calls. Very, very busy day on calls, and, and I wish we had more time to get to everybody. There. And I was going to say, too, it, it, just because we had issues, Susan, if you would like as well, you can send us a message on our oh, yeah. website just because we had that issue today or you can call us at the office. But our website, again, smartinvesting2000.com. You can just go to the contact us portion and just send us a message, and hopefully we can cover the, the topic next week just in case we do have phone issues again with uh, your line. And, and, you know, we had an email I didn't get to. We'll try to get to that one next week. It was from Don. Uh, he uh, wanted to know about uh, Berkshire Hathaway B share. So we'll, we'll try to get to that one next week. We do try to take the phone calls first. Uh, we did spend a lot of time. I think it was very important on the Silicon Valley Bank because we do not see a banking crisis coming along where banks will be folding. Don't run to your bank and, and pull out the money. That was a unique situation on the Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, you got to be really selective and looking at 
again, the companies you're buying here. And if you want to be a smart investor, one thing I'd recommend is get our newsletter. I mean, that newsletter is just, you know, people love it when they get it and you can pull out different things you want. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Well, there's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. Or visit our website, smartinvesting 2000 Com. Well, thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. Have a great day. I find it all so amusing to think that I did all that.